This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. This time on the Out of Water podcast, we're bringing you part of a message from Pastor Sam Kastensmith in his series, The Miracle Behind the Miracles. In this episode, Pastor Sam will be walking us through the definition of biblical miracles and the ancient perspective on Christ's miracles. Even the opponents of Christianity did not deny his miracles. Sam also explains that the most important question you can ask about the Bible's miracles is not what or how, but why. As we will see in this series, the answer behind the why question always leads to the gospel. Let's go to the Ingram Center Theater at Rio Vista Community Church and Pastor Sam Kastensmith. I want to open tonight with a brief message. This is a four-minute little sermonette from a pastor, a Baptist pastor in Texas. His name's Dwayne Miller. He had to resign from his church because he had a degenerative disease that severely damaged his vocal cords, which you'll hear. And so he'd been examined by 63 different doctors wondering if he would ever have his voice recovered back to normal. And they all came back to him and offered a definitive prognosis of 0% likelihood. And so he gives this message on Psalm 103, uh, which is a profound message when you consider what he's walking through. I want you to listen to this because it's not only is his teaching brilliant, but watch what God does. So when the psalmist writes, and he heals all of my diseases, let me say to you that I believe God still heals. That hasn't ended. That is not over. Now you have to be careful on how you do this. Because there are folks who carry things to an excess, and it becomes a show. And God has never intended that that be what it is. God heals in his sovereign will. I don't know why God does things that he does, but I know that he does. And the only thing he requires of me is to allow him to be God and me to be me and let it be. To say that every single person will always be healed because Jesus died on the cross is a misinterpretation of scripture. Not true. Won't work. Isaiah 53 doesn't talk about physical healing. I'm sorry. That's just not the context. And to impress that there causes a misinterpretation of scripture. That's wrong. On the other hand, to say that, since we don't have anything after the book of Acts, that miracles ended at the book of Acts and they never happen again is equally as wrong. Because you have put God in a box both ways. And he doesn't want to be in the box. So, the psalmist says, I'm excited. Bless the Lord, O my soul. One of his benefits is he heals all of my diseases. And then in verse 4 he says, and he redeems my life from the pit. Now, I like that verse just a whole lot. I have had, and you have had in times past, pit experiences. We've both had, we've all had times when our life seemed to be in a pit, in a grave. 
And we didn't have an answer for the pit we find ourselves in. And I don't understand this right now. I'm but overwhelmed at the moment. I'm not quite sure what to say or do. Funny to say a loss for words. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. I He redeems my life from the pit. <laughs> me with love and compassion. He satisfies my desires with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is abounding in love. The Lord will not accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, that's mercy. Or repay us according to our iniquities, that's mercy. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. That gets me every time. He crowns us with love and compassion. Who are we praying to? Who are we praying to? We're praying to a God who looks at us with such intense love that he would set aside everything for us. Do you believe you're praying? That's the God who hears you. The one who would hang on a cross for you hears you. Let me ask this question. Are you cynical, skeptical of miracles? Do you have that bit in you at all? I have a part of me that's skeptical of miracles, and I see this stuff, and it's always God challenging me, breaking down the hardness of my heart. Because let me tell you, like, our God works miracles. He delights, delights in showing his love and compassion to his children. I remember one night, there was this vicious storm going on. I mean, I, I, some of you may have heard me tell this story before. Vicious storm, and one of those storms where it's like... My son, Caleb, who's four or five years old, comes into my office back when we had space for an office before four kids. <laughs> and Caleb comes into the room and he's like, Dad, can you make the thunder stop? It's scaring me. And I'm kind of like, well, that's, that's a bit above my pay grade. <laughs> and he says, well, can we ask God to do it? And immediately, what's my first response? Oh, no. I've got to prepare him for his prayer not to be answered. 
And so I'm thinking, okay, yeah, okay, Caleb, you know, let's pray. But, you know, God's sending the rain. The farmers need the rain. And so he may not answer you because we need the water and we need this and we need this. I'm already bracing him. And so I say, let's pray. God, Caleb is really scared from this thunder. Could you please make the thunder stop? And I kid you not, it went from... And it went... And the storm was done. And Caleb, at five, looks at me like, okay, I'm going to go to sleep now. And I'm going... I'm the pastor here. (laughs) And I think when Jesus tells us that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are like little children... I think there's something to that. God still moves. And you know, when I think about that, it's, it's not that God heard, oh, he asked, and therefore, you know, I'm a cosmic vending machine, and so I'm just going to pour out whatever he asked for. But in my heart, I'm imagining, okay, the God I know, the God who delights in the love of his children, like I can just see him up there going, this one's for you, Caleb, you know? the tenderness and kindness of encouraging my son's faith in that moment for his own glory. He loves to delight and sing his children blessed. And sometimes we're blessed when prayers aren't answered. That's a hard one to swallow. But tonight we're going to talk about the miracle behind the miracles. In 2004, the Lois Finkelstein Institute for Religious and Social Studies did a survey, and they asked questions of 1,100 doctors, physicians, and they found that of those that they surveyed, 55% of them, or 605 physicians, had personally witnessed a medical miracle that was totally beyond their own scientific explanation. 55% of doctors... Later, in 2010, the organization's survey of 1,005 physicians revealed that 75% of doctors claim to personally believe in miracles. They can't explain them. But 55% of them have seen healings where there's zero explanation. That's awesome. So what is a miracle? Anytime you hear, and I want, I want to kind of change our way of seeing what a miracle is, because when you hear miracle, you think, oh, it's an interruption of the natural. You know, the normal is disease. The normal is depression. The normal is death. The normal is this, because that's the world we live in. But I want you to, I want to stop for a moment, and I want you to rewind all the way back to the beginning of creation. How did God create us? He created us with intimate union with the Spirit, with His presence, and there was no death there. There was no sadness there. There was no sickness and disease and all that other stuff that this world knows. So that's God's original design, and we know that at the end of all things, when we're described how we're going to be forever, and when I say forever, eternity, never-ending, right? So this is going to be the norm. There's no more death. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. He's wiped away every tear forever, and and he will dwell with his people. And so I want you to stop for a moment. This world that we live in, death is the intruder. Disease is the intruder. Depression is the intruder. Perfection is the norm. The fall brought the intrusion. And so when you see the miraculous, when you see the Spirit bringing people to life, dead people spiritually to life, healing, doing all those things, it's like heaven is on this invasion mission to reclaim and retake what was lost to the fall. And when we see these miracles, they're little glimpses. 
of what God is ultimately going to do. Tim Keller, who I love, he's a pastor in New York in Manhattan, Redeemer Church, wrote a book called The Reason for God, and he writes this, and I love this. We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. Doesn't that change the way you see things? The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it's wrong and to heal the world where it's broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. It's coming. In our faculty devotion this morning, we were in 1 Peter chapter 1, and it talked about the inheritance that's in store for us. And Peter uses these words, that this hope that we have, this living hope, is imperishable. It will never die. It's never going to be taken away. It never fit. It, it's, and he says it's undefiled. It's not going to be ruined this time like it was in the garden. It will never be messed up. And he says it's unfading, which means when you go, when you finally get into the presence of God and what Keller's talking about, this world that we all want to be in the presence of God, to be perfectly loved, to lose sin and all the effects that come with it. When we go and we stand before him, it says that that inheritance is unfading. You will never get bored of what it will be like to be in the presence of God in glory. You'll never get bored. You can't trace out his infinity, right? You can't. His love's infinite. You're never going to reach a day where you're like, oh, that was neat. I tried out his love. What's next? You're just, your brain is going to keep tracing out this infinite love and never reach the end of it. And you'll never cease to marvel at it. It just keeps going. Oh my God. There's more and more and his mercy and his holiness and his peace and his joy. There's, you never get to the end of it. It's totally unfading. And this is the good news is that verse says it is being kept for you in heaven. What does that mean? Oh, thank God I'm not the one in charge of this. Because if I was in charge of keeping this inheritance, I'd probably squander it by the end of tonight. It's being kept for me in heaven by him. And it says, by the power of God. That is your hope. That is what all these miracles that we're about to hear about and study over the next eight weeks, that's what it's pointing to. You know, I heard a great illustration where they said, if you had a job, and this job was like, it's all right. The work, it's kind of laborious. It's really kind of stressful sometimes. And they said, hey, I'm going to pay you $30,000. You're like, all right. What if they said, I'll pay you $30 million? Now, all of a sudden, it's like, this job's a breeze. No problem. I'm glad to take care of that. All right, woo This is. I'm glad this is wonderful. $30 million. 30 million next to the inheritance that you have kept for you in heaven is garbage. We should walk around in this life joyful. If God brings us a miracle, we praise God, we glorify God, we rejoice in his kindness. If he doesn't, does it lessen the inheritance? Does it make the treasury, this isn't worth it? So we have to have this right perspective on miracles. There's some miracles when you read them, you're like, what was that all about? 
And what I want you to understand, when you come to miracles, and as a Christian, when the world's looking at you and they come and they say, you really believe this? You really believe this guy's born of a virgin? You really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish? You really believe? If you start with the what, right? If you start with the what or the how, you get lost, And people will try to say, well, there are naturalistic explanations for why the Red Sea was parted. And maybe the the fish had an air pocket in its stomach and the acids were kept at bay and Jonah got like nice and comfy. No. If you try to explain away a miracle with naturalistic explanations, you're totally missing the point. Miracles don't make sense in a fallen world. They're not supposed to make sense to a fallen world. The point of them is they make you think to what's beyond the fallen world because a man can't survive in a fish for three days. Fish just don't vomit up coins. People just don't walk on water. So when the skeptic comes, do you really believe that? Say it makes no sense. It's crazy. So the only explanation has to be God. And it's not the what or the how or or the where or the when, it's the why. Why does he do that miracle? That's what we're getting into. The title of this series is called The Miracle Behind the Miracles because in every single one of these miracles, there's this really beautiful truth and all of it is screaming God's love for you. All of it is screaming his passion about resurrection and gospel. And when you see it, you're going, oh my goodness, there it is. Like, if that's his point, is to sing about his love for us in this miracle that otherwise doesn't make sense. It seems like he's just putting on magic shows. No, man, behind every one of them, he's singing his love for you. Then you get why the God of the universe would intervene and say, watch this. And in all these miracles, you see these same reasons that continue to pop up. So here's some reasons for biblical miracles. One, they reveal God's true identity. It's like when Jesus is commanding storms or fish or nature. Like, who does that? It makes the disciples in the boat ask questions like, what sort of man is this? Right? That's the point. They demonstrate God's authority over creation. They restore that which is broken, withered, the outcast. They bring them in. They bring life from death, life from barrenness. They authenticate his gospel message and they foretell the dawn of a new creation that's coming. Every single one of his miracles follows those reasons. And so I want to just start by saying the purpose of miracles, there is always, 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 always a gospel purpose for Jesus's miracles. They provoke people to ask, what sort of man is this? Mm, He's the God man. It's the only answer you can come to. The Lord explains that the miraculous, John and John, it tells us this. Why does he do these miracles? Because they testify that the Father has sent Jesus. And so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah lays out the picture of what the Messiah has come to accomplish, the suffering Messiah, the one who by his stripes, this is what it says, by his stripes we're healed, right? That means, and and literally, he's going to be striped when he's going through his passion, whipped. And by those stripes, we're healed. I think there's a dual meaning. I think that passage is talking about we're forgiven, our sins. I mean, it, it even goes on and talks about our sins and our transgressions. And so the context is clear. But here's the reality. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is what brings all the mess. 
to us. All the things that we pray for, God deliver us, God delivers. What is all that from? It's all the effects of a fallen and broken world, right? So you remove sin from the equation. God restores us to glory. And man, our prayer lives are just adoration at that point, right? And here's the deal. If you're in Christ, every malady, every heartache, every disease that you suffer right now will absolutely be healed. The question is whether or not it's on this side of glory. But he will absolutely heal. That's his self-declared purpose for why he does these things. And here's what you have to believe. Though Jesus possessed the power to perform. Like, you got to think of, if you're Jesus, you come in, you got full humanity, you've got all the temptations and struggles. He never, ever, 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 never once used his miraculous abilities for selfish gain or personal comfort. Never. Think about that. He leaves heaven. He's got all the praises of angels, an abundance of wealth. He's got everything you could possibly ask for, comes into this world, and he's homeless, he's despised, he's going to be hungry at points, he's going to have all this, these personal disadvantages. Never once does he go, I'm taking a shortcut. When, when Satan comes to him and his temptations in the wilderness and says, turn these stones into bread, Jesus says, I will not use my power for that. But then he comes and sees a crowd of 5,000 plus that are hungry, and he multiplies bread. And he doesn't eat any, by the way. And he gives it all away. That's his nature. He uses his power for the blessing of others, not selfishly. So whenever you come across a miracle, and he does, like, in the Gospels, just Jesus, we're told that he does almost 40 miracles, but John concludes his Gospel saying, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. Where does all the books of the New Testament go? Because now I want you to put on your skeptic hat. Where do these books go? They go to all the regions that the New Testament has already claimed that Jesus has performed miracles in the sight of hundreds and thousands. The New Testament, and like the book of Acts, all the apostles are claimed to have done all these incredible miracles all over the Roman world. Raised people from the dead. Healed diseases. Given blind people sight. And you got to say, okay, all these books are scattered all over the Roman world. They go to all these towns. Scribes are copying them. They're going all over the place. And never once does someone say, wait a minute, this says he did what in Capernaum? Jesus who? You never find a skeptic that goes, that didn't happen. You never find someone who challenges, wait a minute, you're saying the apostles did? Peter did what? Paul did what? That never happened. You don't find that. You know what you find? You know what the Jews, when they recorded in the Babylonian Talmud, and they were not fans of Jesus, by the way. They were not happy about Christianity spreading. But when they tried to discredit Christianity, you know what they say? It's really telling. The Babylonian Talmud is a collection of oral traditions recorded by Jewish scribes, and it claims, they write in there, Jesus was hanged, that's crucified, on Passover Eve because he practiced sorcery and led Israel astray. So we're talking about miracles. What do they mean he practiced sorcery? Why would they say that? Like if he was a fraud, if he didn't do anything, and it was just making up stories in the Gospels, and, and the New Testament writers were just winging it, it would have been easy to say this guy was a total fraud, he was a charlatan, they made this all up, but we know, we've gone and we've checked in all these cities where they said this stuff happened, and nobody can validate it. You know, this guy's a total sham artist. Can't do that. Why can't they do that? 
Because there's generational memory. The church is exploding through first and second century world. Everybody's coming. Why? Because there's a generational memory seared into their brains that they've seen stuff they can't explain. And so what are the Jews left with? He was a sorcerer. You get to the Romans. Here's a guy whose name is Celsus the Skeptic. And I, this one always makes me laugh, actually. He says, Jesus returned home. So he's saying, yeah, he did all these miracles. We can't question that. That's for sure. But this is his explanation for it. He went to Egypt, and Jesus returned home highly elated at possessing magical powers. And on the strength of these powers, he gave himself out to be a god. It was by means of sorcery, there it is again, that he was able to accomplish the wonders which he performed. Let us believe that these cures, or the resurrection, or the feeding of a multitude with a few loaves, are nothing more than the tricks of jugglers. Like, it makes me want to bring Sam Lamerson in, the magician pastor, who does all these tricks, and be like, all right, Sam, let's see the resurrection. Here, here's a couple loaves, go for it, you know. Like, how absurd this is. Nothing more than the tricks of jugglers, sorcery. They can't say it didn't happen. Why can't they say that? Because the generational memory won't allow that. Be, be encouraged by this. This stuff happened. Your God is a miracle-working God. And even when you get to this new religion that comes along in the 600s in the Quran, do you know what the Quran concedes when you read it? Six centuries after Jesus, they admit, yeah, he was born of a virgin. He performed many miracles and healings. He was a messenger of Allah. He healed the blind and the leper. He also brought forth the dead. He was a word from God, which is exactly what Jesus claimed. I hold the power of the word of God, which does what? It brings new beginnings. It brings healing. It brings authority. And even the Quran is saying that Jesus is the word of God. They can't deny it. They, they have to bow and say, yes, he must be a prophet because we can't deny his powers. He is a miracle-working God. And even after the ascension of Jesus, the New Testament books list a multitude of miracles performed by apostles, and they're specifically vested with authority to do these miracles. And often, with specific, they'll name people like Dorcas and a town and, and say he was raised from the dead and things that would be easy to verify. And the apostles raised the dead, healed the lame, cast out demons, restored sight to the blind, healed a variety of diseases... And when a third century skeptic is going back and saying, I don't believe this, this is the logic. Again, what do you notice that this has in common? So Porphyry claims that the apostles, listen to this, were poor and country-dwelling men. Certain wonders were worked with magical arts so that they might receive riches from rich and impressionable women whom they led astray. Not that it's unusual, however, to do these wonders, for magicians in Egypt also did wonders against Moses. So here, I mean, here you have them going after Paul and Peter saying they're just sorcerers too. All these miracles that are going on in the early church, nobody says, oh, that's garbage. They all go, it's dark magic. They're sorcerers. We don't know how they did it, but they're tricksters. You don't say that unless you're conceding what? Really strange, powerful things took place. And they were so powerful that it won the Roman world. Question. Could God set off naturalistic events that would cause like the 10 plagues? That's one of the ones that you've seen on the History Channel. 
And absolutely, he can totally do that. You know, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. He talks about healing and he says, doctors don't heal. The hum- God has made the human body to heal. All the, all the agents of healing are in us. He says, you think doctors can heal? Watch them try to treat a corpse. Give medicine to a corpse. See how effective it is. It's the human body that God has designed to bring healing. What doctors do, thankfully, is they tweak whatever's in us that's preventing us from healing ourselves. And so with the the miracles of, of the plagues, totally. And so it goes something like this, that some phenomenon happened that caused this red tide to come through the Red Sea. And from that, the frogs then died. And so they were heaped dead all over the place. And then the gnats and the flies feasted on them. And it caused a disease that broke out among the livestock. And they all started getting boils. And that's where you kind of have to go. But then what? Because then you're saying, okay, maybe the locusts came and they were fed by stuff from the diseases. But when you get to hail and fire falling from heaven and three days of darkness or the death of the firstborn son, like that's where all the naturalistic explanations, you have to go, okay, beyond this, I can't go any further. This is, this is the hand of God directly intervening into the world. And he has stopped using naturalistic means. Now it's, it's all him. It's, it's the Yahweh show at that point, right? Um, but yeah, he absolutely uses naturalistic means. I've seen that in my own life for sure, and I'm sure, I'm sure many of you have too. Question. Do we believe it is the question. I mean, my job is to study this. I'm in front of it all the time, and I still doubt him. I'm still so faithless so often, and he is so patient and so good and so faithful, and he keeps pressing toward me, and slowly but surely, he's beating, <laughs> beating my brain into submission that he still moves. You know, one of the things that we're praying for here at Rio, and this is miraculous stuff, by the way, we are praying for revival to hit, right? We want the Lord to come in a powerful way, his spirit to move in Fort Lauderdale. And man, if that happened, you would begin to see miraculous things. One of my favorite quotes comes from Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography, he writes about how John or uh, Whitfield, George Whitfield, who was a during the Great Awakening in the 1700s, came through. He was a preacher, and Franklin never came to faith, never became a Christian. But Whitfield was after him. Whitfield talked to him, begged him, pleaded with him, shared the gospel with him. Franklin never came, but what he did do was go and watch him preach. And he lived in a town where Whitfield preached. And he says, "Man, in the 10th chapter of his autobiography, go read it. It says." This man came to our town. The preachers, the established churches wouldn't let him in because he was too controversial. And so he went to open air preaching out in the fields. And when he went out there, I couldn't believe that the people loved him. This is Franklin talking. I couldn't believe that the people loved him. I mean, he was referring to people as worms and devils and how they were sinners and they needed salvation. And he just abused them of of where they stand. And then he says, like he's going, oh man, this town's going to riot against this guy. And then the next line of the autobiography says something like this. I'm pretty close. Then it seemed as if overnight the world had gone from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion to where you couldn't walk through the streets of the town without hearing the psalms being sung in every house of the street. The bars dried up. The jails emptied. 
when we study these revivals and it's like, that's amazing. Do you really believe that's Fort Lauderdale? I mean, I look at the Great Awakening and if I'm honest with you, like I'll pray, I would love to see that man. I would love to see God just sweep through Fort Lauderdale and light this city up. But I've got to, I've got to like, this is, this is for me. I've got to get on my face and go, I believe you can do this, God. Do it. Please do it. And, and yearn because, man, I'll tell you, as, as a headmaster, as a pastor here, the amount of pain and brokenness that you see in the world's way of doing things is extreme. Chasing after all the petty trinkets of this world and people crash on the shores and their lives get all messed up and they live according to their wisdom and it's destroying them. Pray for that miracle that God would just come and go and light this place up. I'd love to look at a city where I know healing is in store for them where they are satisfied in the love of God, where they are so overwhelmed with security that the God of the universe has seen them in all of their pain and all of their hurt, and their inheritance is kept by him and his strength. I'd love to see that, man. I would. Some of the families in our school, families in our church, I can't tell you how much I'd love to see them walking in that confidence and joy of knowing the love of the Father through his Son. Powerful. Do we, do we believe it is the question. Can you imagine writing about Fort Lauderdale what Franklin wrote about Pennsylvania? Thanks, Sam. And thank you, friend, for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed what you hear, please subscribe and give us a good rating so that other people can find Out of Water also. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.